Well, if you've been at Remedy for any of this year, you're thinking to yourself, that wasn't the journey video. What's going on? Well, <clears throat> here's what's going on. Uh, we uh, are having a baby, my wife and I, and we were supposed to have the baby already, and so Joe was scheduled to preach, um, but um, we didn't have the baby yet. So um, here I am, and Joe will likely be preaching next week. So the sermon series that we're in, Fields of Harvest, um, Joe will finish that next week, and so I'm doing a standalone sermon today that, that's outside of any kind of sermon series. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, just look underneath you. There's a blue and white one, uh, and you can just take that um, and keep it and use it for yourself or give it away. Um, if you go the digital route, instead of saying, open up your Bible, I'm just going to say, turn on your Bible and, and go to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be uh, in verse 16 is where we'll start today. Acts chapter 16, chapter 17, verse 16 is where we'll start. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in to the book of Acts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. We pray that as we look at it today, that you would use it in our lives, that we would hang on every word that you've said, that we would see each word as precious and and strive to be obedient to the things that you say in your word, God. We We don't approach your word lightly. These are your very words to us, and we pray that you would use them today. I pray for myself, God. I am absolutely, absolutely cognizant of the fact that I know I need you to speak through me and that there's nothing I can do. And so I pray that you would come now and empower me by the Spirit to, um, to preach your word. All the things, God, that you would have me say that are helpful and true, that I would say those things, and the ones that aren't, you would keep me from saying those things. Um, I pray that you give me the, the correct tone and tenor regarding these issues as a pastor who loves people, not someone who just thinks they know everything. Um, because I don't, and I need you. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, and this is um, picking up very much in kind of the middle of everything. So here's what's going on. Um, Christ has come. He has died on the cross. He has been resurrected from the dead. He has ascended into heaven, and he's ruling and reigning. After that, he has saved um, a man named Paul uh, and converted Paul. And Paul now was, a, I mean, a very much a type A guy against the church, just wants to go do everything he can to destroy the church after he became a Christian. His personality didn't change. Um, so he's type A guy for the church, wants to do everything he can so that people come, come to know Christ. And he, um, for the rest of his life after he became a Christian, just went on missionary journeys all over the place. And so we're picking up on these missionary journeys as he's walking around telling people about Jesus. Um, And so what I want to do is we're going to look at some of the strategies that Paul uses regarding cultural engagement and telling people about Jesus. So that's that's the idea of what we're going to be looking at. What are some of the strategies that Paul uses in missionary engagement, cultural engagement? And as he does that, as we see those things, we're going to kind of stand outside and look at those things. What are some of those things that I need to have in my life in order for me to be a good missionary to the culture? Um, Someone that can engage people um, and think about where they are and tell them about Christ in a winsome, creative uh, way so that they will 
give me an ear and not just think I'm crazy and not just think that I know everything and I'm Mr. Judgmental, but instead in a way that shows them that I deeply love them, shows them that I deeply care about them, but also because we know Christ, we have the truth, not, not a truth, the truth. And so we want to engage them in a way that would, that would show them that we love, so, love them. So what we're going to see in the book of Acts are these kind of strategies that he uses. Now, what I want to do here is before we see the strategy he used in Acts 17, which, you know, if you read the whole book, you'd get a billion strategies. We're just going to see some today. Um, I want to take you to another text in 1 Corinthians 9. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Um, this is the heart behind the strategy. This is the heart. So we're going to see strategies. And if you just get the strategy and you're like, what are the strategies? I'm going to go do them. Well, that's good. And, and maybe the Lord would bless it. However, I want you to know his heart behind the strategy. And that's, that's the main thing that we all need. The heart change, the heart desire for people, and then it will inform the way we do it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is what Paul says in regard to his heart for people, and it informs his missional strategy. Verse 19 in chapter 9 says, for though I am free from all, this is Paul, he's, I'm free, and I can, I can do what I want now in Christ, as long as I'm not sinning. This is what he says. For though I'm free from all, what have I done? Exercise my freedom and do whatever I want? No. In regard to other people, this is so awesome. I have made myself a servant to all. So even though I'm free and could do what I want, I have made the most mature Christian decision I could in making myself a servant to all. Why? This is good. That I might win more of them. The whole point of Paul after he came to know Christ, his existence, his missionary strategies, everything he does is because he loves so much, he loves people so much that he makes himself a servant because he wants them to be won over to Christ. And then he's going to talk about how. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. So they understand the Old Testament practices, the prophecies. They understand all the law. And so whenever I'm around them, I observe the law with them. Why do I do that? Even though I don't have to observe the law? that I might win the Jews. Those under the law, I became as one under the law. So even though they're under law, I submitted my, and I'm not, I submitted myself under the law. And he says, though not being myself under the law. I'm not under these laws and I don't have to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway because why? I want them to come to know Christ. Why does he say it? That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And you're like, wait a second here. That means you just went off and send it up and just did whatever you want like they do? No. Look what he says. Uh, became as one outside, not being outside the law of God, but under, outside, but under the law of Christ. So even though I was out there living among the Gentiles, living among the pagans, I didn't indulge in sin, but I did live with them. So over here when I'm with, with the Jews, there's certain foods I can eat, certain foods I can't eat. Whatever they do, that's what I'm going to eat because I want them to listen to me. But whenever I'm out there... <laughs> Bacon. I mean, I can get it. I can get after it. They eat bacon. I'm free to eat bacon. I'm going after, I'm going to eat some bacon with them and a ham sandwich and all the things that we can get when it comes like, so that's, that's kind of a silly illustration, but that's what we're talking about. So wherever I am, I'm going to live. And that's not being a hypocrite. That's the reason why I'm doing it is because I want so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And this is, I become all things to all people. And you just got to make sure you I, this isn't in the Bible. This is my little parenthetical statement. Without sinning, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So Paul's serious about, about seeing people come to know Christ. 
And this is the best line of it all. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So before we get into Acts, and you're going to see these missional strategies he uses in, in regard to engaging culture, you've got to know the heart behind what Paul is. Paul is a missionary at heart, love people, I want them to be saved, and I will become all things to all people that I might save some. So he does it because he loves them. New Testament commentary says he is a humble servant of the gospel. He, as in general, not Paul, but anybody that's a believer, is a humble servant of the gospel who will go to any length, descend or ascend to any level of society and perform any menial task as long as the gospel is proclaimed to all people. That person is a humble servant of God. And that's what he does. I have made myself a servant to all. So before we even get into missional strategies and talking about how you're employing these things or not employing these things, maybe that first question needs to happen in your heart. Am I willing to let go of the freedoms I might have in order to make myself a servant to people so that I can win them? So that, because I care about them. I deeply desire that they would come to know Christ. That's what, that's the heart behind Paul's strategy. Now we're going to go into Acts chapter 17. It's super helpful to know his heart. And as we go into verse 16, I'm, I'm breaking some preaching rules. And that's because I think y'all are brilliant. Here's the deal. In preaching rules, whenever you see the things in the text, you're not supposed to write it in kind of a past tense phrase. So in all seven of these that we're going to look at, oh man, I said the number. Don't get freaked out by seven. Um, <laughs> as we look at these, this is like, like 15. I did 15 three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Um, I'm going to say Paul, yada, 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 yada. So I'm, I'm writing the sentence in the past tense about Paul. You're not supposed to do that in preaching. You're supposed to, as you look at that, think about, okay, Paul does this, and then you take that, and you put it into the future tense, in today's, you know, present tense, and you say, you should, as a Christian, do this. Like, Paul loves people. You sh- I should say, Christians should love people. But, but y'all are brilliant. You don't need me to do that, right? You, you can figure those things out. And the reason why I've strategically left it in the past tense and about regarding Paul and not put it in the present tense is because in these cultural engagement, these missional strategies for cultural engagement, I don't think that every person here has to do all seven of these. Nor do I think that necessarily everybody's called to all of them. You'll see, I think we are called to some of them for sure. There are some that we're absolutely called to. But some of them I don't know that you're called to. And so that's why I've kind of left it the way it is. And I, I know that you know how to write it in a, in a sentence. Like if Paul did this, I can do this today. So it's, it's pretty obvious. I, maybe I'll give an example not that I need to. Verse 16. So Paul has been doing missionary work. He's kind of waiting for it by himself right now in Athens, waiting for his, his peeps to come, his group, his, his posse, whatever you want to call it. And while he's there, he's walking around in the city of Athens. So the city of Athens, by the way, is kind of the center of learn in this particular day and age, the center of learning, the center of artistry. This city exceeded all other cities around it in regard to their spiritual blindness they were very spiritually blind, and they were, um, their indulgence in idolatry was likely unrivaled in most cities. I mean, they were major idolaters in the city, and they had all kinds of altars set up for gods all over the entire city. Um, and so, we'll get to that in a second, but just picture, they believe, I mean, they're Greeks, right? They're, they're, they're all Greeks, and so they believe in Greek gods, and so they just have altars to all the Greek gods they think that exist all over the city, kind of set up around. So Paul's walking into the city. Now notice what happens. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, 
his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. This spirit was provoked. Um, it, it's, an, it's an agitation. This isn't the Holy Spirit provoking him. I mean, he has the Holy Spirit, but this is his own spirit inside of him. We all have the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, and our own spirit inside of us. And so th- that spirit is, is agitated, but not like, you know, I'm mad. More along the lines of um, deeply troubled, a, a deep sadness is, is coming over him. So Paul was provoked within him, his spirit, because he saw that the city was full of idols. This, this isn't anger. This is caring, deep concern. Caring, deep concern. As he's walking through the city and he sees all of these idols, all of these altars set up to all these pagan gods, it says that he's deeply saddened or spirit is provoked because he saw this. So here's the first thing regarding cultural engagement. We're gonna write it about Paul, but you know, you can see it yourself. Paul was deeply saddened within himself when he saw the city was full of idols. So what does that mean? What does that mean in regard to Paul? And how do we, that means as he's walking around, there's two things that he's having happening. First, he has an ability to see idolatry, right? That he has, because of his level of spiritual matureness, maturity, an ability to see that there are idols in this city. And not only that, not as he see these idols, but because he has a love for people, which we talked about in 1 Corinthians 9, his spirit is provoked for the city because they are idolaters. And so he has a deep sadness for them. So if we're looking at this, Paul was deeply saddened within himself when he saw the city of idols. If we would pull that into a present day tense and write it for you, you Christians should be able to identify idols in their city and feel a deep sadness for the people that worship these idols. See, pretty simple. You're smart. I know you can handle the rest of them. But that's what we're talking about. So as Paul's walking around, he sees this. That means for us, we must within ourselves foster a deep desire to be able to start discerning the idols that are in our contemporary culture. And as we identify these things in our surrounding culture, we want to have a heart that breaks for the idolaters. Not a heart that detests the idolaters. A heart, we can detest the idols, but a heart that loves and cares for and a heart that breaks for the idolaters, for the people. We want to love them. And that's what happens with Paul. So our first idea of missional engagement is this. Just to make it, you know, brass tacks. You're not going to engage your culture if you're not broken over your culture. You're not going to care. You're going to just ho-hum, marry upon your way, no big deal, too bad for them. I got junk to do in my life. You're not ever going to stop and engage them if your heart doesn't break for them. Your heart's not going to break for them if you can't even see how um, the idols are affecting their lives. So the first one is that he sees these idols and he's broken. What does he do? What does he do? Does he say, too bad for y'all. Man, I'm going to the next city. It was better over in Macedonia. No, he doesn't do that. What does he do? Remember, type A, what does Paul do? Type A. So, look, so he reasoned, like immediately. I've got to do something. I've got to say something. I can't just sit here idly by, no pun intended because it's differently spelled, like idly by um, while they do this, right? I need, to, I need to go and do something about it, and specifically engage them. So it says in verse 17, so he reasoned. And if you look at verse 18, the Epicurean historic philosophers and conversed with them. He reasoned and conversed. He had to be a man of action. He went to where they were. So he had to go. And notice where he goes in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. 
So he's becoming as a man under the law, those that are under the law, and the devout persons, those are those that are religious. And he went to the marketplace and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I mean, if he walks up to somebody and they're there at that particular moment, he just assumes divine appointment. All right, so anytime, oh, you're here, God must have put you here. You didn't walk here by yourself. You thought you came to buy a net or, you know, I don't know what they buy back then, a Hebrew burger. Like you thought you were here for, for, for that. No, no. You're here because God put you here right now because I'm here and I need to tell you about Jesus right now, whether it's in the synagogue or the marketplace. So that's the second thing. Paul went to the church, and I air quoted church because um, the religious, that's where they are today. Paul went to the church where the religious were of the day and the marketplace with the irreligious where everyday life is happening. He went to both of these places. So, I mean, Write that in present day sentence. It's real simple. We should be in both places. We should have a deep desire to be around the religious and the irreligious. Those that say they follow Christ but maybe don't. You know, the church is full of those, right? Or in the marketplace where all the the people are that don't follow Jesus. We need to do both of these things. And while we're there, like Paul, we need to reason and converse with them. We need to have a dialogue with them, a deep desire to be with them, to talk with them, because, as we saw in point number one, we have a heart that breaks for those that don't know Jesus. Uh, One pastor says it this way, in regarding going to the marketplace of culture, it says, therefore, I engage culture not for entertainment, but rather for theologically motivated missional observation. I feel like I need to kind of explain what that means because it's so huge. We don't, as believers, watch anything just for entertainment's sake. It's, it's, it's not the, the proper way, I think, to live as believers. While you may be entertained by things, I am going to watch Gamecock football this fall and I'm going to cheer for them and want them to win and I engage in that and I let my kids come and do it, but it's not necessarily alone, the only reason. While I'm there, I certainly want to know The people that are there get to know them. I get invited to hang out with people at these games. While I'm there, I'm not just like, Gamecocks all the way, that's it, right? No, what's your story? Who are you? What's going on in your life? How can I talk to you about Jesus in some particular way? So while I am certainly for and understand that while we watch things, we, we can equate this to movies or whatever. We don't just mindly sit down, turn off the brain, kind of throw it off and just veg out on entertainment. This is not the Christian way to interact with our culture. Instead, we engage with culture, not for entertainment solely, if you will, but for theologically motivated missional observation. In other words, as I engage culture and see what they're talking about, I am much more informed about who their gods are, little g, who their idols are. And so because of that, now when it's time to engage them, I know about them and I'm not making blanket assumptions about them. And so he says, I engage culture not for entertainment, but rather theologically motivated mission observation with the purpose of finding the sins and idols that have replaced the gospel of Jesus in the culture as the source of their only hope and worship, an object of worship. All the while, and this is so key for us because engaging in culture can be a dangerous business for Christians. And I'm here advocating for engaging in culture. So it's a dangerous business to say, go engage in culture, all the while praying to keep a clear heart and mind as to not be corrupted by the culture. So in regard to cultural engagement, we're going to talk about it. There's kind of some levels of, of engagement. 
But here's what I mean. So for us, in the marketplace, I think we can all understand our engagement with, with the religious. We see that all the time. But engagement in the markets, TV, radio, talk radio, malls, grocery stores, magazine racks, um, these kinds of things uh, online, these kinds of things can show you what's in the culture. And I, and I don't necessarily mean just kind of low-class culture, popular culture. I'm more talking about the more intelligentsia high culture because that always informs later on sometimes the low culture. So I'm not talking about, you know, ridiculous things. Um, so here's the deal. If you're not involved in that whatsoever, I guess the, the main takeaway is you, you've got to break your routine. If you're in a routine where you are not finding out any kind of idols in your culture for the purpose of missiological work, then break your routine and change something up so that you're around people that don't know Jesus and what they believe in their ideas in the marketplace more. Whether it's watching something different, reading a different book, hanging out with people that have vastly different ideas from you and learning from what it is that they believe for the purpose that you've got to break your routine and get into those things to understand all the while in that engagement, praying the Lord to keep you strong and not engage in it. So um, anyway, that's, that's the second one, which is Paul went to both places, the, the, the religious and the irreligious. And as he did, as we saw, he reasoned and he conversed with them. So in verse 17, he reasoned with the synagogue, with the Jews and those who happened to be there. Verse 18, we're going to see um, two groups of philosophers that are there present. He says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Let me explain who these people are uh, if you're not f- familiar with them. Epicurean people, the philosophers, they come from this guy named Epicurus. Epicurus was a, a lover of pleasure. Um, basically, the idea was the highest good or the highest virtue. In, in philosophy, the, one of the things that you're always after in, in their belief system is, what's the highest virtue in this system? What's the highest virtue? And they say the highest virtue, according to the Epicureans, is to pursue one's pleasure in whatever form you want. As long as you are not experiencing suffering and grief and running from any kind of suffering and grief and you're pursuing your highest pleasure in any form that you want, then you are um, pursuing the highest good. Now, you can just let your mind run wild and how decadent that can get. It can get remarkably evil. Also, that's the Epicureans. You also have the Stoics. The Stoics, if you ever, you ever heard the phrase, like their face is Stoic, they're just like, they're like, just no expression. So in a lot of ways, the Epicureans and the Stoics are kind of the opposites. While the Epicureans seemingly in their mind are having the most fun in their life ever, the Stoics are just not ever having to have a good time. They're always sad. And here's, here's why. First of all, they're pantheists. Pan meaning all around, theist means God. So they believe God's in everything. God's in the chair, God's in the trees, God's in the leaves, God's in the pine straw, God's in everything. So while they, we as Christians believe in kind of two thoughts about God, that he's transcendent, very far off, and eminent, really close, they don't believe in transcendency, they just believe in eminent. They believe because they're pantheists that he's everywhere, he's always eminent. But the difference is, we believe he's also personal, and they don't believe he's personal. They just believe he's everywhere, but not personal. So they're, they're pantheists, and they believe that since God isn't transcendent, but always eminent, and, but never personal, Paul's going to address this pantheism soon when he talks about it. But they believe the highest good was also to be virtuous. But being virtuous meant they're very much determinists. Whatever 
fate, fate had given you, um, what you should do, the highest virtue you can do is just accept it. That's why they're always so stoic, because they're always so unhappy. I hate this. But the best thing, the most virtuous thing I can do is not try to change it, not try to make my life better, instead just accept it. And so that's why they're always stoic and sad and not very happy at all. Um, commentators will kind of describe as Epicureans and Stoics in a lot of ways as opposites. So Paul is also conversing with these two. And some said, I'm in the middle of verse 18, some of the Stoics and Epicureans, as Paul is walking up, says, what does this babbler wish to say? This, this word babbler is, is a term of derision. It's not a compliment whatsoever. Um, by the way, we will, as also, be uh, people who will be prosecuted persecuted. We will have terms of derision thrown at us. So they call him a babbler. This is literally, uh, as you look at the word babbler, one who picks up seeds. It's like the chicken, you know, that walks around and picks up the seed and kind of spits it out. And you can just picture that. Basically, they're saying, this babbler, who's, who's the guy who's walking around picking up seeds and then spouts out all the kinds of stuff that they just thought they heard, but they don't fully understand? That's you, Paul. Why don't you come over here and tell us what you, what you think? So they don't have a high opinion of Paul whatsoever. It kind of comes out into the translation of babbler. Uh, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities um, because he was preaching Jesus as the resurrection. So we believe in gods, we believe in divinities, but this guy's preaching of foreign divinities, things we never heard, because he's preaching about this guy named Jesus, who he's saying is God, and he's preaching about his resurrection. All right, so we should stop here and think about this for a second. First thing we saw is that Paul identifies idols. The second thing is that Paul goes to the church and the marketplace. But one thing that's sure, in the reasoning and conversing that Paul's been having with those the religious and the irreligious, the Epicureans and the Stoics, what has happened, because it just tells us there, is as he's been conversing and reasoning, he's been preaching the gospel. Look what it says. He seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was, past tense, while he's been here in, in Athens, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So while I've said some of these, we might not necessarily have to, have to do in our missional strategy, which those are coming. This is one I think we have to do. Paul preached Jesus here. Paul preached. So in our cultural engagement, there has to come a moment whenever we talk about, we have to proclaim Jesus, proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection. We don't just engage them, hear all their kind of philosophies and say, you know, those are interesting. I have a system. I have a belief system as well. And I will not tell you it. And then walk away. Like we, we have to engage with them. And as we engage, Tell them about Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. We, we have to proclaim the gospel. The simple reason is this. Because their belief systems, when they say them, nothing happens powerfully. Something might, somebody might believe. But the simple truth is that whenever we, believe, whenever we proclaim our gospel, the Bible tells us that there is power. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, for it is the power of, of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if I tell you the gospel, like the Holy Spirit literally comes in power behind it and does things. Holy Spirit does it, not me. No other message has this, but ours does. So we have to proclaim the gospel. So your cultural engagement must, 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 must always include gospel proclamation. Now, that's part one of the gospel proclamation is telling the gospel. Part two of gospel proclamation is going to come later at point seven. But I think sometimes, in my own fault, I think I leave that out sometimes. I'm going to talk about what part two is soon. But 
The first one is, you have to tell about Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You have to tell them the good news of the gospel. What's next? Verse 19, so they bring the chicken guy, Paul, you know, Mr. Seed fella. They say, uh, they took a hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is a big deal. This is the hill of Ayers. Ayers is the Greek god of war. Uh, this particular court had authority over all civil and religious life. So Paul is kind of getting a, a nice little invite to come to the intelligentsia of the day, the, the academy of the day, and actually talk about his specific belief system, his ideas. They bring him to the Areopagus and they say, saying, may we know what this new teaching is. So this is something they've never heard before. They're unacquainted with Jesus in the scriptures that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. The gospel will always be thought as strange. The good news is always going to be thought of as, that's just, what? God became a man? Like, why would, the, why would God leave such a high place and come here and not just live with us, but die on purpose? That's, that's crazy. Tell me about this strange, you know, assumption that you have. They, they think that's insane. And a lot of, I've had this conversation with people that didn't grow up in America and didn't grow up Christian. When I tell them, yeah, God became man and willingly died. They just, that's insane. Your view of God's too low. I've actually, I've literally been told that. God would not do that. Why would God, bec- their, their understanding of just how way far above God is of us it's, it's so high, he's like, that's, that's insane. Why would God do that? <laughs> we're, we're so much different than him, so much lower than him. Um, maybe that informs how much our transcendency of God should be. He, he's way more holy than us. But he does do that. He does come. So these, they say, we want to hear this strange thing. We wish to know what these things mean. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time and nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, we would think that's pretty much a waste, but this is basically what's going on. Um, in Athens, you had this group of people in the academy, in the intelligentsia. I mean, this is Greek philosophy, so it's a big deal for them to always be talking about philosophies. There was these group that would always come there, and they would kind of invite the guest speaker of the week, tell us your ideas. We love hearing these things, and they would leave and bring the next one. Sometimes, like with Paul, they would hear the truth from, from, from God. Other times it would just be random people. But this is what's going on there. They loved learning anything and they invite people that seem remotely you know, able to communicate deeper things and invite them in. Paul's getting this invite. So for Paul, his environment of flourishing in regard to proclaiming the gospel is in the academy, is in the intelligentsia, is with the most learned people, right? Because he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, just brilliant person, memorized all kinds of things growing up, had a Christ teach him for three years after he, he, he was um, converted. And then now, I mean, just, just a brilliant man. That's Paul's environment of flourishing. That's probably not any of our environments of flourishing, right? So let's just take the one step back and say, what is your environment of flourishing? Where is it that you feel the most comfortable and whenever you feel the most comfortable around these particular people, people get saved. Is it in the South? Is it in the North? Is it in the West? Is it outside of the United States? Is it with adults? Is it with children? Is it with kids? Is it with females? Is it with males? Is it with the really learned? Is it with you know, people that hopefully aren't too learned, but I'm not like pulling rank on them and just being smarter than them. I'm actually on their level. Like we just, we're from the country. You know, that's just the way, like, what is it? What is it that's your environment where, if you think about the people that you've led to Christ and you're kind of looking at the groups, most of the people that I've 
at least told about Jesus and seem to have some kind of like, "Uh uh-huh, I got you. That's my environment. That's my group of flourishing. And I'm saying, listen, why would you not, why would you not keep going there? I'm not saying like to the neglect, like if you only reach 25-year-old males and like they're not, like, sorry, I can't tell you the gospel. You can go talk to somebody else. Like I only talk, tell the gospel directly at 25. I'm not saying that. Of course you tell it to your neighbors or whoever, but know your kind of environment of flourishing. That's, this is Paul. This is his wheelhouse. And so where is it for you? Where is it for you? Paul is, is doing that here. And you'll see he has different, we'll see that in just, at the very end, he has different levels of you know, success, if you will, in, in his proclamation of the gospel. So, Paul, this is where, this is where it gets, um, in 22, it gets strategic, and Paul is going to put on display some of his intelligence and his love for people, which allows him to actually have conversation. Notice what he says. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, says, notice what he says. Men of Athens, respect already, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Hmm. That's quite different than what we read in verse 16, right? He didn't say, notice 16, his spirits were broke because he saw the city was full of idols. He didn't say, men of Athens, you're all a bunch of pagan idol worshipers. What is going on here, right? <laughs> like, because the conversation's over. They're, he's, they're done with him. So in his intelligence, and warning and love for them. He wants to just have one, more than just kind of one conversation and it's all over. He wants to have, this might be crazy to some of y'all, a friendship with unbelievers. Like be able to actually continually have conversations with them. So he, he says it while it's absolutely true, but it's not condescending. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And they are, because there's altars everywhere. There's altars everywhere. So for him... His heart breaks because they're idols. But the words that come out are, you're all very religious. And I'm perceiving that. He's not affirming them in their false religiosity or idolatry. But he's also, by doing that, continuing the conversation where it doesn't call them all pagan idol worshipers. And then um, he even goes as far. So let's, let's talk about the idols. While there, there's altars everywhere, all over because they're very religious I mean, these, these guys are super, super religious in Athens. They want to make sure they have every Greek God covered. So there's literally like everyone that they could think of, we're going to make an altar to it. Because if one of these happens to be right, we need to make sure that we've got an altar. So if he shows up here, we can say, we got an altar for you. <laughs> like, don't strike us down and kill us. And so they have all these altars. And what they did is like, after they built them all, they're like, hmm, you know, I don't know. There's this one little nagging thing. What if none of these are the God? Um, and and that we're just, they're all wrong. What we need to do is make one more and we'll just make it to the unknown God so that if he shows up, we can say, no, no, we got one for you too. We just, we just know your name. And here it is right here. So, you know, we're on your team too, team unknown God. Like we're all, we're all with everybody here, right? So that's, that's the idea of what's going on here. So as Paul's walking around and he sees just all these altars to, you know, random Greek gods and he sees unknown God, spirits provoked. He's very sad because he sees, God, these people are so idolatrous. But he's going to key in on unknown God because he's going to say, you were going on the right track there for a second. Um, let me tell you who he is. He's Yahweh. He is the only God. And you, you were right. So as he says, I see men of Athens. I perceive you're, that you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. We'll stop there. We're going to see what he proclaims. But the point that he, that he makes here is that Paul intelligently makes a point of contact for the gospel with what they're familiar with and what they know. There's something that they're familiar with. For them, it's the unknown God. They know that that exists. And he says it in a winsome way. I see that you're very religious. He makes that smart point of contact for the gospel. This, this plays itself out in the way that you have cultural engagement and the way that you have conversations with people. In other words, we wouldn't just say, you're all a bunch of pagan idolaters and you need Jesus. That's not what he does. You want to make a smart, winsome, intelligent point of contact for the gospel with whatever their belief system is. Just know what it is that they believe. If they believe that God's transcendent, start there. If they believe that God is imminent, start there. If they believe that there's a creator and that's all they believe, start there. If they believe in redemption, start there. Just whatever their system has, find what is true and start with that. Make a point of entry and then explain to them how that actually relates to Jesus. Not in some bombastic way, but instead in a winsome way, in a loving way, in a kind way, in a kind that will actually continue the conversation, not just end it because you've, you know, destroyed them personally. So Paul says, for I passed along and observed the objects of worship, I found also on the altar in this inscription to the unknown God, to the unknown God. So Paul's willing, for the sake of the gospel, willing to accommodate his speech to the level of his audience. He's willing to accommodate his speech to them so that they can know. Now, he's not equating their worship to the unknown God as real right worship to the true God, Yahweh. He's not telling them, oh, and you've been worshiping Yahweh correctly as well (laughs) since you've been worshiping. This word worship actually isn't... um, you know, I've, we've talked about worship sometimes in the, in, in the New Testament as when you see the word worship, it's proskuneo or laturo, proskuneo, like come forward and bow down and worship or laturo, go out and live a lifestyle of worship. And both of those are just, that word worship is either one of those. It's, it's eusebite, which is kind of like to act reverently towards. So they just kind of act reverently towards this altar. They are kind of remotely devoted, uh, devoutly uh, acting piously towards it. If that's, these are all kind of the words when you use the translation. So they're not, they're not proskuneoing it. They're not giving it their all their worship. And so Paul in here is not saying, by the way, the worship you've been given to the unknown God is absolutely perfect. And you've been given great worship to Yahweh the whole time. You just didn't know. That's not what he's saying. As a matter of fact, um, I have a Calvin quote. Calvin says, we want them to know God first before they can actually worship him correctly. He says, it's far better first to know God than to rashly or unintelligently or wrongly worship him who you do not know. God cannot be worshiped rightly unless he is first made known or unless he is also known. So this worship they've been given to the unknown God is not correct worship to Yahweh, to Jesus. Instead, um, Paul wants them to know who he is, then they can worship him correctly. So he makes uh, a brilliant point of contact with the gospel. All right, now, Let's talk about how he makes this point of contact. He goes over to the, to the unknown God and there's many, many things about God that he can talk about. But because he's talking primarily to Epicureans and Stoics, there's something about God that he's going to use to talk about them. This is apologetics. Okay, so Paul is going to use apologetics. So let's just go ahead and put up 
the fifth one. Um, and this is where I think maybe this is maybe one that we all can't do. Paul uses apologetics as a means to evangelism. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, means to make a defense. So Paul is just going to make a defense for God based on uh, what they believe. Here's how he does it. Um, of all the things about God that he could defend, he's going to take the doctrine of creation to the Epicureans and Stoics because that's going to be something that really they're going to listen to because they have a deep interest in that. And so he knows that because he's crazy smart. He's going to pull that out and use that as the way to talk about God, the doctrine of creation. You can see it in verse 24. Verse 24 says, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it. So we already see how he's using the doctrine of creation as the point of entry with them for the apologetic with them. Um, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Very much where God breathed into the man and breathed into his lungs and gave him life. So this is all Genesis kind of work. You can even see in verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having um, determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So he even says that all of mankind is kind of Um, and he made from one man every nation. So the idea that there is one man and everybody's kind of related to that one man. So this is all the doctrine of creation. How it relates, I'll just, for FYI, how it relates to those two guys, the Epicureans and the Stoics, are the Stoics had no doctrine of creation at all. So Paul's telling them how it happened. The Stoics were pantheists, um, and pantheists have a strong sense of brotherhood because God's in everything. We all, they all kind of think we're related anyway. And he's like, yeah, we are, because there's a man who God created, who started everything, and we're all related to that one man. So he's pulling on that sense of brotherhood that they have and trying to help them see, that's right. We all do have a sense of brotherhood, and it's all found in Adam. Um, And he's wanting to correct their teaching of pantheism, instead trying to help them see that we believe in monotheism, one God, not many gods, and it's in everything, but instead we believe in one God, the one true God, and he's helping them see that he's the one that governs and cares over everything. He made everything, including Athens and all the Athenians in here. So he he uses creation for them. With the Epicureans, who are lovers of pleasure, he uses the doctrine of creation to see that they're all guilty of Romans 125, worshiping the created things rather than the creator, the one that they're supposed to give glory to. So they worship, obviously, every created thing they can and find their highest pleasure and joy in those created things. And Romans one twenty five tells us that that's not what we're supposed to do. Instead, those things are supposed to push us to the creator and we don't worship the things he created. Instead, we worship the creator. So he uses creation as a way for these people to be able to see that they should, um, they should worship God. And he uses a, a text uh, that they don't even know of. He's quoting the Bible. He's quoting Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says, God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it to give breath to all the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So he's, he's quoting scripture and the people don't even have any idea he's quoting scripture as he's helping them with the doctrine of creation to see that <clears throat> the unknown God is actually Yahweh. So if we're just gonna brass tax it for us on this, and I'm saying you need to have a helpful strategy in cultural mission engagement is apologetics. Some of you should do that. Some of you should go buy all the apologetic books and, and study that. And some of you probably shouldn't. I'm, I'm terrible at it. I'm, I don't feel like I'm very good at it at all. I think there are some that are really good at it. I don't know that everybody should do this. This is one of those, 
Maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. Just are you called to it? And you should always have kind of a little bit of a, you know, First uh, Peter 3.15, we should all be ready to give a defense of the hope we have in us. That's the, that's the John Chambers version. But it's something like that. We should all have a little bit of apologetic kind of um, in our holster. But not everybody's necessarily called to full on, I know everything about apologetics. I can do Thomistic apologetics. I can do all these different things. We, who knows? I can't do that. Um, but that's what Paul does. Paul uses apologetics to show that he cares for them and that he's going to listen to their objections knows their objections, and then gives them loving, caring answers, not just repent because you're all going to hell or you're all just big idols. Like, he doesn't do that. So he, he talks to them, approaches them with things that they understand. Now, before we get to the next thing, I want to talk about culture. I've been saying that we should have some level, I've advocated for some level of cultural engagement. And there's really kind of big three ideas of cultural engagement. Um, there's a book by Niebuhr. I think it's called Christ and Culture. It's remarkably difficult to read. If you want to read a book that will make you bang your head against the wall, go after it. Um, But it's got good categories to help us understand culture. But there's some ideas on how we engage culture. There's kind of, here's culture, it's wicked, it's crazy, and everything's sinful, and I'm heading for the hills and getting away from culture. Don't want to have anything from it. Those are sectarians. Those are the monks throughout the last 2,000 years that have just headed out. But there's also the too far people, the two that go so far into culture and know so much about culture, there's not much distinguishing between them and Jesus. I can't even see how you are like Jesus. Um, but then there's the kind of the middle. This is the, the for Niebuhr, the tri- Christ transforming culture. So we are going to understand and be in culture, but while we're in this, we want to see parts of the culture be transformed for Christ. We're not gonna engage in sinful activity. And the things that can't be transformed for Christ and redeemed, like pornography, that you can't do a, a level of pornography that's redeem, redeemed for Jesus. That's just awful and needs to be done with forever. That can't be redeemed. But there are some things that can be redeemed. For, the people can be. I'm talking about the, the, the form can't. But the people obviously can be. So there's, there's things about our culture that can't be redeemed. But as a Christ-transforming culture, I'm going to be in culture, transforming it for the cause of Christ. That's, that's kind of the three ideas. Pull away, go too far, or be in there discerning that I'm not going to sin, but I'm going to be involved in the culture so that people and even parts of the culture itself can be transformed. So where do you think, where you are on that? You may be a runaway, you may be a too far. We'll, We'll get that in the conclusion. But Paul, I think, is in that middle ground. Here's why. Because as he's talking with the Athenians um, and getting in their level, look what he does and verse, we'll start at 27. Uh, he's talking about how God's ordained these periods that they should seek God, talking about the people and hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. So kind of like a, a grasping of the dark, I want to find God. But verse 26, it's all determined that the Lord will do these things. He's allotted these periods. Will, those that are believers will find him, will be believers. And yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So he's, he's keying in on that eminence again, the closeness of God. He's not far from us. You know that, right? You know that he's not far from us. But not only is he not far from us in, in his eminence, he's actually personal. And then to prove his point that he's not far from us, he quotes two things. Both of these quotes are not Bible verses. They're actually poetry, pagan poetry about Zeus. 
both of these two things. In him we live and move and have our being, we, for we indeed are both his offspring. We read those and they're like, yeah, that's, that's in the Bible. That's, that's about Jesus. That's actually not about Jesus. Quote one is by Epimenides, who is said by Menas, the son of Zeus, speaking on behalf of his father, saying, in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul's saying, well, that's about Zeus, but actually it's wrong. Um, it's actually absolutely true if you're talking about God. In God... Christ, we do live and move and have our being. That's, that's who we come from. And then the second one, for we're all indeed his offspring. That's written by a guy named Aratus honoring Zeus. And he wrote for all indeed his offspring. Actually, that is true, but not re- about Zeus, but about God. That's why he even says in verse 29, being then God's offspring. Not Zeus's, but God's offspring. And so Paul here uses the poetry of the day the culture of the day, as a way to drive home his truth. That's what he does. So here's the sixth thing. Paul uses knowledge of the culture and quotes poetry of the day that they're familiar with for the purpose of evangelism. So notice, his cultural engagement is not just to have like a binge on Netflix for no purpose, right? His cultural engagement is for the purpose of evangelism to know what are the big ideas of that they believe in order to engage the culture for the purpose of evangelism that people would come to know Christ. So we as Christians don't just headlong ourselves into culture and know everything about it and there's no distinguishing reason or a thing about us in the culture where, wait a second, what is it that makes me distinguish about Jesus in this culture? We, we can't have that, right? Nor should we run away and not be in the culture at all. I mean, if, you, if we do that, it's really obvious, the people there won't get saved. <laughs> like, if you're not there to tell them about Jesus, kind of disobeying some big, huge things like Matthew 28. So we got to be there to actually tell them, but our proper involvement is absolutely key. Paul here knows culture and does it to, um, for the purpose of evangelism. So our end goal is to see Christ transform people and transform culture both. What can be redeemed? This must be remembered as we enter into culture and our mindset should, should be to use the things that we understand about culture and the beliefs that we've, been, that we've learned for the purpose of evangelism, not just to be some kind of sinful participant in, in, in culture. Um, by quoting these things, New Testament commentary says, by quoting these particular poets, Paul is not um, intimating or saying that he agrees with the pagan setting in which the citations flourish. Rather, He's using the words to fit his Christian teaching. He's helping them see that those things are true, but only about God, not Zeus. Capital G God, not your lower G gods. So after he does this and tells them that they're, they're actually about God, but being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the heart or imagination of man. You can't create God. He's already been created. So still building on the doctrine of creation. He's always been. He's helping them understand. But the times of ignorance God overlooked. So those times when people didn't know who God was, he used to kind of overlook those in some different ways. But now, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So everybody knows that there is a God, has an understanding that there is a God, and he's commanding everybody everywhere. And he's always done that. But the overlooking was not, not judging or not giving the the judgment for it until Christ came. And then he put it on Christ. That's a whole different theological discussion. 
let's just pull out of this, that right now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay? So in part number three, where I said there, you have to preach Jesus, that's kind of the part one of preaching the gospel. The part two of preaching the gospel is this. Paul tells them and commands them that God commands us to repent and turn from our sin. That's number seven. You can go ahead and put it up. Um, finally, Paul tells them that God commands us to repent and turn from our sin. So a full orbed gospel presentation is not just here's who Jesus is, death, burial, and resurrection. FYI, that's, <laughs> that's not gospel presentation. A full orbed gospel presentation is here's Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. And you know what you should do? You should believe. You should trust him. You should come to him. So in your presentations, we, we want to tell people about Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. But then after that, we want to say something along the lines of, do you want to trust him today? How about right now? If they followed you throughout the entire, this is what I do. Whenever I'm in the magic booth, this Holy Spirit booth at Chick-fil-A, when I'm sitting there with them and I tell them about, about Jesus, you get to the end. If they've been following me the whole way, I just don't say, well, I'm glad we had this meeting, man. I want you to think about that and pray about that for a while. Uh-uh. If they've been following me the whole way, I say, well, how about right now then? What's keeping you from trusting Christ right now? You should put your faith in Jesus and be saved right here in this moment. That's the full Lord gospel presentation. It's not just all the information and present who Jesus is, but a call to repentance and faith. That's, that's what presenting the gospel is. And a lot of times it's, you know, it's a mixed bag of responses. What are they going to do? I don't know. Sometimes they'll say yes, sometimes right there. They'll say, they'll say yeah, I want it, right there in Chick-fil-A. Two times, same booth. Like it happened. It, it happened and we baptized them. So that's, that's what we mean by a full orb gospel presentation is not just a presentation but a deep heart that loves them so much that you're going to say well why not right now right here wherever we are you know this is a bat- awkward background but this is it or it's a perfect background who knows you go for it don't neglect the duty that we have as believers um, to tell them that they must also not just hear the message of Jesus but also turn to Christ with repentance and faith we, we want them to trust Christ and then I mean, most people don't know how to walk through that. It's, it's not some big mystical thing. They just need to trust Jesus. But a lot of people don't know what that means. Or You have the beautiful opportunity to, to tell them and, and walk them through it. And you're like, I've got to lead someone to Christ today. And like, you're all pumped up and jazzed up for at least three weeks. Um, maybe longer if the Holy Spirit's awesome to you. So what's the response then? What happens when Paul does this? Let's, I, want you to, I want to conclude by this. If, you, if you're not a believer in Jesus, look at these responses. Um, and I want to beg you even right now to make a response of repentance and faith. Verse 32, when they heard this, well, I'll finish reading, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that's Jesus, whom he has appointed. And all of this has given assurance to all by raising them from the dead. So we have assurance and faith because he'll one day raise us from the dead. We will live eternally forever with Jesus and be saved from all of our sins forever, giving him all the glory he deserves for saving us. I mean, this is just an amazing, amazing, amazing message. It is the only message that saves. What's the response as he's told the Areopagus, verse 32? When they heard this, the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So first, some people mocked and rejected Jesus. Yeah, right, no, no thanks, that sounds crazy, or I've got a whole lot of living I need to do before I do something like that. No thanks. That doesn't sound inviting to me whatsoever. Don't, no. That's the first. I'm praying if you don't know Jesus today, that's not your response. The next two 
are, are, are good. The, the last one's obviously the best. But this one's not illegitimate. Verse uh, 32b, but others said, we will hear you again about this. In other words, this sounds like it's true and I need to do some more investigation. I need to hear more. If that's your position this morning, that's great. And I just invite you to investigate. Ask me, talk to the person you came with. We want to tell you more about the gospel and why it is true. Or you can see after that, so Paul left in their midst in verse 34, but some men joined and believed among who were also, you know, these people. So some people believed and that's, that's what we're calling for today if you're not a believer in Jesus. Trust and believe today. That's if you're not a Christian. What does this whole sermon mean if you are a Christian? This is what it means. We talked about seven strategies for missional engagement culture. I think that we can, all of us, think about what in this list do we want to pray that the Lord would help us. Are we deeply saddened about the idolatry in our culture? When we look around, are we deeply saddened? Or are we just ho-hum? If you're not, pray that the Lord would help you be deeply saddened by it. Or maybe you don't need, maybe you need to rearrange the schedule. You need to change the routine. You need to go to the religious and the irreligious and be around people in the marketplace. Or maybe you need to make sure that when you preach the gospel, you also call for faith and repentance. Maybe you preach the gospel and you're just like, that's all I can do. And I'm scared to actually say, how about right now? I've been there. Like, don't feel bad. I've been there too. Scared to death to say, how about right now? And maybe that's what you need to start doing. Perhaps you need to just start making up more of a winsome point of contact for the gospel. You're kind of bombastic in the way you lob bombs in at the quote unquote pagans. And that's, that's not, it's not going to do anything likely in the long run, but for the friendship and certainly not for them coming to Christ. And we, you need to grow in your awareness of that and grow in your um, way to do that. Maybe you need to grow in apologetics. But lastly, I would say this. Um, maybe your cultural engagement needs to shift. Maybe you're right there in the middle and that's good. But maybe you're so far away, you're not ever around Christ- non-Christians. Or, and maybe this might be the case for us, you're too far in. And there's no discernible difference between you and Jesus in the culture, in your life. And you need to pull yourself out. A 40-day fast of whatever it is that's vying for your affections. I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps it's all the way back up to the very, very beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You still haven't said in your heart, though I'm free from all, I'm going to make myself a servant to all. And there's a big heart level change. Not, not some kind of rearranging the deck chairs of strategy that needs to happen. But a big, huge heart change needs to happen. Where you're going to say, I need to make myself a servant to all. Not just live my life the way I want. We're going into a time of response, which means the God of creation is warning you to respond to the things you've heard have time here the God that loves you more than you could ever conceive and created you and knows you more intimately than you even know yourself is calling for a response here and you you have time so take the time think and pray ask the Lord how can I employ these things do I need a, a deeper heart do I need to be a servant do I need to become a Christian 
however he's leading, be obedient to it right now. I'm going to pray and we'll go into a time of response. You can talk to the person you came with. You can talk to me. I'll be in the back. Maybe you just need to sit and pray and think for a little while. Or just stand and sing out to God who's worthy of, of, of the glory that he deserves. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love and kindness and mercy you've given to us in Christ. We pray that as we looked at this text, it will certainly inform the way we live. God, that we would deeply desire to see you proclaimed, but more so, God, not just proclaimed, that people would come to know Jesus because of us. Pray if anybody here doesn't know Jesus, that they would this morning. Be with us now as we worship God and respond.